Welcome to Tuesday on Time with Joan Bartlett. We're still waiting for spring, but not too long now as we move through August. Today we'll hear from Amy Tacey from the Just Food Collective on the work to assist women farmers on the Gaza, now being pounded once again by Israel. Like grandfather, like grandson. That's a story from Japan with historian and author Humphrey McQueen. You'll recognise the grandson, Shinzo Abe, but maybe not the grandfather, a Class 1 war criminal. Bob Phelps once again with his monthly gene ethics report. And Brian Terrell, veteran anti-war activist with plenty of areas to talk about. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy and what a week he's had. A week, Jan, listener, when here in True Blue Aussie, a 43% reduction in emissions by 2030 was passed. All we have to do now is work out the how of all that, with no commitment to prevent the fossils extracting more and more fossils. An interesting equation, while caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo constable Peter Duffer's temperature rose by much more than 43%, nearing geezer proportions as he denounced this major threat to the fossils as a stunt for which we'd all pay while coming up with that most practical and sensible solution to a problem he knows is not a problem anyway, replace fossil pollution with nuclear fallout, nuclear pollution. Well, not exactly um, replace, add nuclear pollution to fossil pollution, the best of both worlds. That'll teach the long-haired commie greedy lots for seeking a solution to a non-problem. And the increasingly revived and strident nuclear industry voice never mentions what used to be a little problem of what to do with thousands of years of radioactive waste. So obviously they've solved that problem and Peter's turned his radioactive desires to nuclear power plants which would be up and running at about the same time as the nuclear submarines he was extolling a few months ago and turn out to be just as cheap. Practical Pete, we should call him. Nuclear subs to launch the nuclear war on evil China, Pete knows is the only solution for democracy to prevail, on which the temperature certainly soared much higher than the 43%. More like several hundred percent as the US of the UN of the US of the world speaker Nancy Peloso-Smart defended democracy in Taiwan, the evil China island to which the reactionaries fled, or sorry, the good guys fled, as the evil communists took over the mainland and declared this little, that is the good guys, declared this little now good, good democratic Chinese island was China, and the rest of China was not China, just evil, but now Nancy has had to defend democracy, defend capitalism against, um, against uh, well, against capitalism. Oh, but evil capitalism, so powerful it poses a threat to the hegemony of the home of democracy, the US of Citadel of real democracy and good capitalism. Nancy, who on the US of political spectrum is seen as moderate, so it was moderate provocation. 
Sadly, her commander-in-chief was unable to comment on Nancy's defence of all that is good as two days after coming out of isolation, he was back in isolation. One of the fastest relapses in COVID history and to make matters worse, evil China decided it was time to undertake a bit of evil live ammunition trained killing practice off Chinese Taiwan. Just like the good live ammunition trained killing exercises the US of undertakes off Queensland with our very own True Blue Aussie train killers. As part of their invaluable contribution to the 43% target, the great fossil behemoths, anxious to help us all, attacked attempts to force them to put the local gas market first, pointing out this would cause untold tragedy for its international clients. And the solution was simple. Force governments like Victoria to open up their gas to, to well, to them the same companies who would gladly carry out their social responsibilities like extract it and make a killing, both financially and environmentally, but also necessarily, because we can't have international clients losing faith in True Blue Aussie. And on the financial killing, the same poor dears are fighting off suggestions that throughout the so-called energy crisis, they have been making a financial killing, gaming the market, as they say. How such unfair allegations must hurt great corporations who show such sensitive concern for the planet and its inhabitants. Their case was endorsed most logically by global financial behemoth KP on the planet MG, global head of energy Regina Mayor, real name who came all the way from Houston to advise us we have no choice but to extract as much coal and gas and oil as we can because... Well, because it seems that there's a quid in it, a few trillion quid in it. Her logic hit its heights with this piece of irrefutable advice. I don't believe the planet can cope with no new oil and gas and no new coal because we still have a society that demands energy. Indeed, how can we cope without them? And yet the long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden working and iron lots run the ridiculous argument, how can the planet cope with them, with oil and gas and coal? Who do we believe, the long-haired, commie, greeny lots, or a respectable KP on the planet executive from Houston, Texas? It's a no-brainer. Why does no-brainer remind me of Constable Duffer, but it wasn't just Ray's poor Constable Duffer's temperature week and Ray's train killing temperature week, it was also homelessness week, and once again Trubler was he celebrated by making sure there is plenty of it, and there'll still be plenty of it in homelessness week next year. It's been a couple of big weeks, a couple more of big weeks for state-caring business class supremo and would-be big state supremo, the lobster with a mobster, looking redder than your average spectacularly overpriced lobster, after he had decided to play the small target policy trick and agree to match the pejorative Dan Lot on emission targets, which, incidentally, are higher than the 43% his federal leader, Constable Duffer, says will destroy life as we know. It. Agree. So what did his party do? It selected a new candidate from the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs who not only doesn't support reducing emissions, he doesn't believe in climate change at all. Oh dear.
Same day after the lobster wit had got rid of Bernie finished, after Bernie said not even rape victims should be allowed to have an abortion, the child shouldn't pay for it, you know, like parents' crime, showing Bernie knows women ask for it, although he may not be aware that not too many male rapists get pregnant. Anyway, the party then chose a woman to replace Bernie. Good start. Except a woman who holds exactly the same beliefs on those issues as Bernie. Just as the lobster with was gathering his breath and trying to explain all that, party democracy, that sort of crap, along came his chief of stuffing up, stuffing up embroiling Paul Lobster with in an embroglio over political cum personal donations, Lobster with being referred to the Integrity Commission. Paul Lobster with. Four months to the election, perfect timing. Making the Lobster with the best thing going for the pejorative Dan. The Caring Employer Award of the Week to appropriately named Josh Foreman, real name, supremo of a mob called Indebted, described as a fast-growing fintech startup that has digitized debt collections. Debt collectors, that most honorable of professions. Anyway, Indebted was named Trublowozzi's best place to work while announcing a doubling in value to more than $200 million, which it has celebrated by repaying its best place to work staff in kindness. It has sacked, or sorry, sadly had to let go 40 of those workers, for them the best place no longer to work. Meanwhile, multinational delivery giant FedEx, which has about 5,000 True Blue Aussie workers, plans to go gig. See, Amazon is competing by employing contractors, giving these workers the exciting feeling of knowing each one is a private one-person corporation, forced to deliver one parcel per minute or thereabouts, and with no award wages to worry about, and FedEx says it must do the same. Contract workers who own their own van to work under the same slave or, sorry, fun, fun, fun conditions, the fun compensating for the miserable wage they will receive for their enjoyment. And showing its lack of concern for poor multinational giant FedEx, the bloody evil union says the solution is not to join a race to the bottom in wages and conditions led by Amazon, but to ensure all workers are employed under award wages and conditions. Doesn't this show how far evil unions are removed from the difficulties facing caring employers? It's not like FedEx or Amazon, for that matter, would enjoy having to rip workers off to achieve their massive obscene profits. We may have to concede that Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect giant mind omniscient columnist Andrew Bolt through the head is spot on. The ABC is riddled with leftists bent on attacking all that is good about our neoliberal white Christian society. There's no doubt there's a mole in there doing just that. We know for the past couple of years the classic station has had listeners forming an online choir singing a Christmas song. The first one two years ago was written by soprano Deborah Cheatham and well this year maintaining that indigenous connection and Andrew and Lord Rupert know how racist that is, indigenous connection, they've chosen the music to Oh Christmas Tree with words that include a number in indigenous languages. The left connection I hear, if that isn't already left enough, well, obviously, the music, which comes from the classical repertoire, is also the tune of 
the red flag. The people's flag is deepest red. It's shrouded off now, martyred dead. Showing some socialist, commie, long-haired, greedy mole in the ABC with thousands across the country singing the tune is into subliminal brainwashing, subliminal agitprop. Let's hope Andrew wakes up to this latest commie plot as soon as possible. The consistency of the week award to Constable Duffer and the team who cut the fuel excise as petrol prices soared but announced it would be restored in September, no ifs or buts because we couldn't afford not to restore it in September and the then socialist opposition agreed. Well, now that the caring business class hayseed and cheap shit coalition is in opposition, they are demanding the heartless socialists not restore the excise. An exercise in consistency. Pete, your consistency of the week award is on its way. And as Zion yet again launched a murderous attack on the Palestinian non-country non-people, it said it was reacting to terrorism which it must have been, because our media described the people of Gaza as terrorists, this time telling us, although the non-people had not fired anything in anger, Zion knew it was thinking of, would like to fire something in anger. Wicked terrorists. We have to stop them thinking. They are always thinking bad things about good liberty, freedom and democracy, love and Zion. So we are always justified in slaughtering these non-people, non-country terrorists. But then, good, good Zion announced it had not killed innocents, but the Gaza non-country, non-people terrorists had killed themselves. Thus, finally, as the world commemorated Hiroshima Day, the great peace-loving U.S. of the only country to resort to nuclear warfare, we can be sure Constable Duffer will tell us all this shows just how evil is evil China. Good afternoon. And Mr Kevin Healy will be at it again at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning with City Limits. Stay tuned in to 3CR Community Radio. Ross House has community meeting rooms available for hire at subsidised rates. Perfect for small meetings, student study groups, Zoom conferencing and seminars. Facilities include free Wi-Fi, display screens for presentations, projector and sound system and a Zoom conferencing system. HEPA filter units have been placed in every meeting room. You can book and pay via their website, rosshouse.org.au, or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQA plus communities and meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. 
For more information and to hear our podcast episodes, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash pxfanau, spelt P-X-W-H-A-N-A-U. The next interview with Amy Tacey, the Vice President of Just Food Collective here in Melbourne, was recorded last week just prior to the latest Israeli bombing of the people of Gaza. The irony will not be lost as the project which Amy will talk about was instigated in response to the bombings and seven-day aerial assault of May 2021 on Gaza. $50 million of vegetables, field crops and fruit trees were destroyed. Another $9 million of greenhouses and crops were lost and over $11 million worth of livestock farming. Amongst these devastating losses, over half of the women-owned farms and agri-entrepreneurs of Gaza were partially or completely destroyed. These losses worsened already existing vulnerabilities and the marginalisation of female agripreneurs in Gaza. Eleven days of bombing diminished many of the economic and empowering gains they had painstakingly achieved over decades. I began asking Amy how her journey to support women farmers in Gaza began with the Just Food Collective. We came together through being Bachelor of Food Studies students at William Anglis Institute, kind of spearheaded by Dr Nick Rose and Dr Kelly Donati. Degree is an amazing opportunity to understand the social sciences side of uh, the food system and food insecurity and food governance. And we were kind of missing a, um, an application of this theory that we've been learning in university to the real world context. And we kept hearing of all these amazing grassroots organisations doing all this work um, in the sector, especially in Victoria. It's quite um, prominent. And I, um, along with a number of other students, about about five of us, but it's grown to be more, had decided to come together to create a collective that empowers youth and um, youth food justice. So we came together in June 2021, and we were unsure what to do with ourselves, where to fit within the kind of the food systems sector. And we decided to start by organising ourselves um, as an incorporated association so that we could apply for grants and maybe make meaningful contributions in that way. Um, We did, a number of us did get asked to be on specific campaigns and events that sustain we're running and Sustain is run by Dr. Nick Rose and uh, is also, I think, chaired by Kelly Donati. So it was a nice uh, mentorship um, that we had from them. And yeah, it, it became a bit of like a ongoing collaborative relationship between Just Food Collective and Sustain through the second half of 2021. And that was with working on the Re- Rebuilding Women Owned Farms of Gaza campaign, as well as the UN Food Systems Summit Dialogue that was convened by Nick and Sustain late last year. What did you know about Gaza prior to this? I didn't have a great deal of like intricate understanding of, of the context, both like locally in Gaza and in Palestine. 
before I got involved in this campaign. What I've learnt now about the levels of food insecurity and poverty and also just restricted access to trade that um, and access to resources, access for these women to export their agricultural uh, produce that they grow and make, I had very little understanding of that. And I think there's, in a way, there's a, a lack of that information kind of being distributed within even food system circles in Victoria. And I think this opportunity to be involved in this really allowed me to understand just how difficult it is for especially women and uh, women who grow and make food in in Gaza. And what have you learned about the organisations within Gaza? And also why the situation is so dire, what was so dire at that time when you became part of it with Sustain? Yeah, of course. Ahmed, the director of Gupup, which is the organisation that we were working with for this campaign, the Gaza Agriculture and Peri-Urban Agriculture Organisation, he really described to us recently that the organisations in Gaza specifically, um, they lack an ability to kind of reach beyond the borders of, of Palestine for really supportive aid and really um, like uh, capacity building aid that's not, you know, shifting away from this framework of humanitarian aid that we know so well in, in supporting the places of need or the global south. So I think like it was, it was really interesting to be involved with Group Up and watch them as an organization be the forefront of this new change of organizations in Gaza reaching out to global organizations for help and, and help in this kind of like really um, resilience building way. And I think for Ahmed, he is very proud that they have created this framework from this campaign that we were on that's for other organizations in Gaza and means that these people can go away and ask organizations globally for assistance that is, um, I think in Ahmed's terms, he wants them to be the three key points to be partnership, collaboration and solidarity. So really just making sure that there's a, a level of, of dignity in this campaigning for aid. And I'm sure Nick explained to you the situation for the women farmers in Gaza with the, the bombings that happen regularly by the Israeli armed forces that, that destroy their livelihood and their and, and often their whole entire farms. Yeah, absolutely. And the situation in Gaza kind of ex- was exacerbated by COVID and coupled with the May 2021 um, bombings in Palestine. And I think that's at the point where um, Ahmed from Gupap reached out to these organisations across the globe for solidarity with these women so that they can realise their aspirations for food sovereignty. But it is a very, very difficult situation for these women, not only just the genuine uh, fear and impact that bombings would have, of course, like that's... (laughs) uh, But the occupation itself is continuing to affect Gaza being at all food secure and I think there's about 62% of Gaza is food insecure and realising that these women, they're agripreneurs, they both produce 
the food to be economically sustainable and also for their families. They're the the people who who make the food for their families and they're going away and trying to grow um, and make this produce and that's what Pup is supporting them to do. But also that they they just have a lack of um, opportunity to access resources that support their agricultural endeavours. And I think that when we started out um, this campaign and this conversation with um, Ahmed and Allah and a, f- a few of the other women that are a part of Up, we were chatting about how this campaign, we wanted them to have the ability to access these resources through this funding and through this campaigning of aid. And it ended up being that that's not how they, in real reality, want to be supported. It's hard for them to get their produce beyond Gaza. So we had decided in the end of the campaign that maybe it would be better to, um, and the women of Goop Up, and within that um, there is a there is a Urban Women Agripreneurs Forum, and the women of this forum decided that it would be best that the money gets distributed by the campaign funding, pay for buying the produce um, of the, the women um, of Gaza, and that means that they can distribute it to people in need. So pretty much um, what we decided to do and where the money ended up from this campaign was that it went to, to all of the women agripreneurs that were a part of um, UF. That meant that they could decide who was most in need. And that was amazing because there was uh, about – they established all these packages uh, based on the needs of recipients and their women farmers received seeds and gluten-free products were given to members of this um, Palestinian organization for celiac disease and products made from stevia were given to the uh, Association for Children with Diabetes and then there was also produce and healthy food baskets given to women who were in a safe shelter um, from domestic violence. And there was also a couple of other organisations uh, that assisted group up in the distribution of about 350 healthy food baskets to um, regular families of Gaza. Can you talk about what you know about the individual women farmers and their families and what life's been like for them? What have you been told how they survive on a day-to-day basis, I suppose? We got to know a few of the women from UF uh, through Zoom calls that we were meeting fortnightly. Allah and Ahmed sometimes brought along um, some of these women who were making the food so that we could get to know them. We also got to know them through writing their stories as success and resilience stories that got distributed around the time of uh, the campaign. And my colleague Savannah um, was the person who wrote these in conjunction with a friend of Nick's who translated for us. And that was a very eye-opening experience. The, the women, um, they are so, so like resilient. They are so beautiful and they are so passionate about what they do. Learning about their first food businesses in, in Gaza of one type, say seed, seed collecting or making products with stevia or making gluten-free products or growing a specific, you know, collection of herbs was really fascinating to understand and enlightening, I guess, to to know what it's like. I think there is 
a certain level of privacy of of their everyday life that was not talked about, I guess, through those Zoom calls. And I think that's where that um, global relationship can be inhibited by not being able to meet these people in person. And Ahmed always says that if we um, ever want to, he would he would welcome us to come over and and learn some more um, about the the UF women. And I think just that this forum that they were a part of seemed to like strengthen the resilience for these women to form a safe space for them to go to, to use their skills to create videos for Goop Up and to get their word out and to defend their rights of being able to produce food and have, have a sovereign and food secure situation for themselves, their family and for Gaza. And being such a large population in such a very small area that is Gaza, the women wouldn't have had much land to do what they do. How do they do it? Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Jan. It is a very small place, Gaza, and I think that um, Gupup have really utilised the kind of collaboration and shared land um, tenorship model to be able to allow the women to be on site together, having little stations where or um, kind of almost hubs that they create or grow their own food. And, I mean, like that's what we need anyway. We need farmers and producers to utilise their shared knowledge and come together when there is a lack of space, which is common in other urban environments as well across the world. So the women, yeah, utilising the land that they have, I think, is what Gupap and, and the women of, of the forum have really been um, able to sh- show us as an example for how how there can be a small space but a lots of produce being produced within this. And I think also, in a way, learning some of these success and resilience stories and maybe coming from a perspective that they would be purely an agricultural output but actually understanding that a lot of them are doing other types of agripreneur business, such as the, the seed collecting and saving, I think really amplifies that they are understanding um, their context and how to use and utilise and be economically resilient um, within that context. Do the children help the mother? Um, yes, there was some examples of the children uh, involved in the production, but Mostly we experienced and saw um, these women just working together and I think possibly at some, uh, in some circumstances that were, it was said that these women have supportive families or large families at home that they are then giving them the time and space to be able to go to group up and to the centre or to where they grow their food and um, have that space with other women other mothers to be able to come together. And this food that they're producing, it's sustainable. It's no fancy meals for people. It's just a matter of fact of giving people the food to live. Absolutely. And I think that was amplified in the outcomes of the campaign when the women's food was bought by the campaign aid funding and they produced and collaborated on making these healthy food baskets that that were for families and that's 
really important as well. Like they're just attending to a serious need um, of food insecurity in Gaza. And I think that just the effects to like the, of, of the access to essential services is a severe humanitarian crisis in Gaza. And I believe that the women are just doing amazing work to produce food that can just go on the table for these families. And, and that was 352 families that received a basket of food and, and that's grown, you know, within their region and, and down the road and, and by these women. And I think that that's a great outcome. Amy, this program began late last year and it's just finalising now. I'd imagine in the, in the future and in the not too distant future that, that organisations such as yours and Sustain would like to continue in that future to continue to assist the women in Gaza. Jan, absolutely, that's correct. And um, we have an ongoing conversation with um, Ahmed and Allah from Gupap. Dr. Nick Rose from Sustain and uh, myself from Just Food Collective. And I think it's really important to keep that relationship um, as an ongoing one. And this wasn't the first time that Sustain and Gupap had come together either. Uh, there was a previous collaboration, I think, as part of the Urban Agricultural Forum in previous years. So I believe that we will continue to work with Gupap and assess how we can assist them moving forward. I think that the the kind of shift now is that Gupap have distributed this framework for long-term resilient and sovereign development policies that shift the focus away from the emergency aid to solidarity campaigns that really reflect the context of Gaza. So I think assisting where we can with those and like assisting the wider um, organisational situation in Gaza will be important too. I think also it's just, it's really nice to constantly meet up with them over Zoom and have chats about how the Urban Women Agricultural Forum is going and see how the, the this campaign can be a bit of a starting point for how organisations can support Gupap and and others in Gaza. Well, finally, Amy, I think it's also important that you and your colleagues have increased your knowledge of what life is like in Gaza. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that assisting with and um, being a part of this campaign and this journey has really shown us um, a lot about who is out there, also, like for one, doing amazing work within Gupap and UAF, but also just who in Gaza are, what the situation is and what the, the context of the food insecurity is and um, how these women are producing food to support their the families um, in, in Gaza. Okay, thanks for bringing attention to this. Thanks, Dan. And I've been speaking with Amy Tacey the Vice President of the Just Food Collective. Do look them up, Just Food Collective, and also Sustain. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Kofias are Palestinian scarves 
and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Want to hear us slam the atomic industry? Then tune into the radioactive show on 3CR 10 a.m. Saturdays. Shinzo Abe was assassinated last month and world leaders were following over each other to sing his praises and lament his death. But as is often the case, there is another side to men such as Abe. The one reference I saw was the connection of his wife to a rightist religious sect. There's much more, and Humphrey McQueen, political activist, historian and author, has been doing the research Japan Humphrey, it's a society which many of us have little knowledge about, but in this interview you trace the political persuasions of Shinto Abe back over a century to his grandfather, not as some say like father and son, but in this case like grandfather, like grandson. 
Well, yes. I mean, you say it's important for people to know, and there's almost nobody in Australia at the time, even the people who really knew the story, who felt that they could say anything about it. The ABC did its usual number of being a repeater station for Voice of America and told us nothing at all about it. Abe himself, well, first of all, he's a crook, but all that tells you is he's a, a leading Japanese member of the Liberal Democratic Party because the whole thing is corrupt from top to bottom. But it's so corrupt that that's just taken as how normal politics function. I'm kind of working backwards to him, but when he retired as Prime Minister, they put out these lies that, oh, he wasn't well and, you know, he was retiring for health reasons. There was yet another inquiry into, into corruption about him, all the details of which uh, had come out. One of the things that happened was that very common in Japan, somebody under you has to take responsibility for, for your crimes and mistakes. And one of the people around Abe in this regard committed suicide, which, again, not uncommon with what you have to do under these circumstances. Anyway, the man who killed himself, his widow, was not so convinced that this was a good idea. And she campaigned and pushed. And there ended up being quite a large investigation into it. Of course, by the time the results came out, which proved everything I've just been saying, there was more corruption scandal somewhere else and the, you know, the media caravan had moved on. But that's not why he was, he was going to be assassinated. But the complicated story behind the assassination, the other thing is that Abe comes out of one of these royal families. Grandfather had been prime minister. His uncle had been foreign minister. I mean, they're just endlessly locked into each other. So... His grandfather had been a Class A war criminal. He was on trial. He was in Sukumo prison from 1945 to 1948 for the war crimes that he committed in Manchukuo. And what he'd done, he was in charge of the slave labour camps of the Chinese. All of his comments about the Chinese was that, was that they, were, they weren't really part of the human race and, and they should be treated as such. And cost, like all of them, one of the things he did in Manchukuo was to build up a large fortune for himself as well, right? all the stuff that, that they were able to steal. So in '45, he ends up in, in jail with the other Class A war criminals. Some of them, like you know, General Tojo and people, they get executed. But the trials are going on. And by 1948, because of the rise of communist China, particularly, which is, you know, I mean, it's about a year before they take power, but it was clear that General Ishimo cashed my cheque was on his way out. And the Americans were alarmed by this, needless to say, and they decided they would have to, what was called, reverse course, as far as the Japanese war criminals were concerned. So they let these surviving war criminals out and encouraged them to take over and run post-war Japan which is exactly what happened in the case of Abe's grandfather. And he becomes, he becomes prime minister uh, in 57. And what his primary aim then is, and what the Americans want, they want a revision of the post-war peace treaty. And you've got to remember that 
that the Americans had written the Japanese constitution, the post-war constitution. This is known as the pacifist constitution. On paper, it certainly is. And in practice, it's turned out to be that. What it allows the Japanese to do is to have a self-defense force. They've got a self-defense air force, a self-defense navy, a self-defense army. And we might get back to that in a minute. But the Americans wanted more than this. Uh, they didn't want the Japanese, well, partly for political reasons at home, they didn't want the Japanese to go rampaging around Asia anymore on their behalf. What they wanted to do was to get greater access. They were already using Okinawa, and they virtually, I mean, they still occupied Okinawa, which is one of the reasons why for a very long time Okinawa had a communist government that they were so angry about what the Japanese central government and the Americans were up to. But this was to be, Kishi's great aim was to rewrite the US-Japanese peace treaty, which we'd been forced to sign on to in 51 as well, which is how we got the ANZUS Treaty, because the Australians said to the Americans, look, the Australian population will not accept a peace treaty with Japan unless you give us a guarantee that you'll come and protect us the next time the Japanese come. Now, the ANZUS Treaty, of course, you know, makes no provision for anything, just a a wasted scrap of paper, but they were able to float it around in 1951. So we signed up to the peace treaty and we got the ANZUS treaty out of the Yanks at the same time. But they wanted to, the Americans needed, they thought, by 1960 to get greater access to parts of, well, to use Japan as they still do fundamentally as a vast aircraft carrier. That's what its primary function for them is. So, so they have this solid base around the Koreas and Siberia and China and uh, all the way down there. So that's what they've got. Now, there's an enormous opposition to this. In the post-war period, the opposition to the militarists, and it's intriguing to think about this in, in the Japanese case because it's not how Australians were brought up to think about the Japanese population. Strangely enough, unlike Great Britain, the Japanese had elections during the war. Now, there was a very limited franchise, but in the elections that took place, the party which was least enthusiastic about the war was the one that got the most votes. And amazingly enough, Prime Minister Tojo then felt obliged to resign, although he was the Minister for War and the Prime Minister. So when the war was over, there's a great anger at the ruling groups and a great rise of anti-war sentiment. So that even when I was in Japan in the late 1980s, the Japanese government kept doing opinion polls and asking the population things like, if Japan was invaded by the Russians or the Chinese communists, what would you do? And 90% of the population said, surrender. Now, this attitude was even stronger and more militant during the 1950s, and for another reason as well. Japan had been flattened. There wasn't two sticks standing upon each other. The bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki had no worse effect than the firebombing of most of the Japanese cities. There was nothing left. They had to rebuild from scratch 
they were they were in a worse position than they had been in the time of the Meiji Restoration in the late 1860s. And the only way to do this, of course, if you, if you know any Marxist economics, the only way to do it is to screw the workers, to get every last ounce of value out of them. And this is what the ruling class indeed set out to do. But, of course, as we know, it made the working class very angry. So there's an enormous radical movement in Japan all through the 1950s. The combination of this working class rebellion about how they were about how they were being treated and the anti-war sentiment and these combine to produce a demonstration well many many demonstrations but the biggest one was Eisenhower was supposed to come to Tokyo to sign the new peace treaty the demonstrations around this were so vast that even by using the gangs of gangsters, and we'll come back to them in a minute too, uh, using this, their, their army and the police and all of these things, they could not guarantee Eisenhower's security. They had to cancel his visit. And it's an extraordinary thing to say, you know, to look back now. But that was the situation at the time. By now, within the Japanese you know, ruling party, a lot of them were very upset about how about how the country had been led up this garden path about the peace treaty. It just, you know. So everybody within the LDP wanted to get rid of Kishi. And then there was an attempt on his life. People think it was by one of the organised, by one of the, one of the leaders of the other factions who hoped to become the Prime Minister in his place. But shortly after, they were able to sign the treaty, although Eisenhower didn't come to do it, Kishi is then forced out. But of course, because he's got so much money and all of these connections that he has, he doesn't lose his influence. So, fast forward, his grandson becomes the Prime Minister of Japan. Now, how Kishi had this power was that from 1948, well, 45 onwards, in the, in, in, when he was in jail, he meets up with his old buddy from Manchukuo, a man called Koldama. Now, Koldama had been over there as well. He'd been a you know, sort of leading gangster. He'd accumulated an enormous amount of money that he'd stolen in Manchukuo. When he knows he's going to get arrested in 1945, he hands it over to conservative politicians. When he's released in 48, he gets it back and he then sets out to organise these political right-wing thugs. He gets involved with the organised, with the criminal gangs, um, the Yakuza. And when the peace treaty's on and these demonstrations are on, they're using them as they had done against the workers when they're on strike. I mean, that was one of the main things they were they were using these people for to bash up working class activities as well. They were using them on the streets and indeed the secretary of the Japan Socialist Party is indeed assassinated. You won't be surprised to hear that the young man who did the assassination spared the government any embarrassment by managing to commit suicide in police custody. So yes, I know. Surprise, surprise. 
But Koldemar is Kishi's other hand. He, he was known as the Shadow Shogun. And he survives too. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean Kishi loses office in 1960, but the power of these people are able to continue through the Liberal Democratic Party. However, in the, in the 60s and into the 70s, there were opposition groups to them, as I said, there had been during the 30s and into the early 1940s as well. The people who were not so enthusiastic about, you know, going off to another war or something. So it's only in the last, well, the last 20 years that the pro-war party, that the Kishi family faction, represented by Abe, came to the fore, and they now pretty much dominate the Liberal Democratic Party. Now, 50% of the population, of course, don't vote. What sort of democracy, even a bourgeois democracy, are they thinking about there? What they want to do is to go further into expanding the military activities. What they would love to do uh, is to amend the section of the Constitution which says that the Japanese are not to use their military forces for any external or aggressive or seemingly aggressive activity. That they want to get rid of. They've managed to to twist all the other bits so that, yes, the Americans can have their nuclear weapons on Japan, all of those things. But that's the other one that that they want to be able to do. The other thing, of course, that Abe is responsible for is really for sparking the fight with China over, over all the offshore islands everywhere. When the Japanese followed the Americans by recognising what were previously known as the Red Bandits in Beijing as the legitimate government of China, what they had to do uh, out of that was to accept that while there were disputed islands, and, well, some of them are islands, some of them are just lumps of rocks down there in the sea, uh, what they had to agree to do was that both sides would say, okay, you claim them, we claim them, we're just just going to leave it at that. And that's how it had gone from 1971-72, really, for the next 40 years. And it's only Abe who manages some bizarre situation. These rocks were owned by a private individual. He gets the government to buy them from them, and this then provokes the Chinese, and he then sets out to say, well, there's all these other things that, you know, that are down there that are disputed as well. And that gives rise to the current surge of activities about the, you know, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons why the Chinese have began to say, well, you know, these islands that you stole from us, uh, in, in the 1890s, um, and you were supposed to give back in the post-war years, and and you didn't because the Americans wouldn't let you because they wanted to hold on to Okinawa as well, these things are now all going to be thrown heavily into a kind of dispute situation which uh, which we have now seen. Now, if you think that, all of that is bad enough, there's one more thing you've got to think about. Some of these people, and in America, and in the Council of Foreign Relations, 
think they can have a small nuclear war with China and get away with it. How anyone could think, you know, this kind of defies reason for the rest of us. We haven't heard any of this nonsense since Herman Kahn was thinking the unthinkable in the, you know, around 1960, that, oh, yeah, that you could have a preemptive nuclear strike and we'd win yeah, and there wouldn't be any damage to us. So these people are talking about this and indeed the Council of Foreign Relations had published uh, a book recently in which this notion of a limited nuclear exchange with the Chinese is put forward as a rational military activity. They don't say this when they're interviewed on the ABC, but some of the Japanese leaders, when, you, when they're asked about this, you know, and how would you survive a nuclear attack? Oh, we survived two already. We can survive another one. I mean, you, know, you just can't put your head into this kind of space. But this is where they are. And this book from the Council of Foreign Relations is written by a man called Colby. Now, many 3CR listeners will remember Colby's, his grandfather, was the head of the Central Intelligence Agency. Like Abe and the Kishis, Colby is part of the American political establishment. And he has produced this book in which this question of a limited nuclear strike, you can imagine such a thing, is seriously debated as an option as the only way that, that the Americans would have the power to stop the rise of communist China as they call it. I would just throw in one more little thing. There is one possible benefit from a nuclear exchange. It would put an end to global warming. Many of your listeners will go back and remember the book about the impact of even a limited nuclear war on the rest of the environment, that the amount of dust that would go up into the atmosphere would block out the sun and we would have a nuclear winter. But to get into these kinds of considerations, I mean, even to begin to think about it, but we don't hear about it. I have seen nothing or heard of anything in the mainstream areas that have even taken note of this work from the Council of Foreign Relations and the support that it gets in some of these sections uh, of, of the Japanese establishment. And presumably, given the nonsense that one hears from the strategic experts in Canberra, there are people here who have accepted the same line. There's a kind of brief rundown about these sort of gangster warmongers but remember again, this is not the Japanese population. As I say, you ask the Japanese population and they say no. And indeed, one of the problems that the Abe's of the world have is that to change the constitution, they would have to have a referendum. And the chances of their getting a majority vote are not very great. Does the death of Abe mean the end of that dynasty? No, 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 no. Even if he didn't have any children or cousins or nephews or something, one of the things they do is to adopt somebody and take them into the family. But no, 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 it certainly hasn't put an end, hasn't put an end to that. But the other thing to remember is, of course, there are people in there, in the LDP, who are even madder than he is. If you want to get a notion of some sense of how extreme some of them are, look at the woman who was the mayor of Tokyo. 
Yeah, you can't believe the views they have. What they would like to do in their dreams is to go back, take over Manchukuo, take over Korea, take over Formosa again. That's their view of where Japan should be in the world. Now, they know they can't do that. I know they're not going to get away with that again. But this revanchist idea that they are the victims of the war is how they see themselves. In the 19th century, they were certainly the victims of European imperialist attacks. And they responded to that by saying, well, the only way we're going to survive and not be carved up like the Chinese, the only way we can survive is to become like you, which is what they set out to do. But there is this deep feeling that they have been singled out for blame, which is not untrue. I mean, we don't hear. I mean, well, I'll just give you one little example. If you go to the war memorial that they built, the museum up in Darwin, the Japanese air raid, the storyline starts 1868 with the Meiji Restoration. And I said to one of the people up there in charge, what about Commodore Perry when he and the Europeans when they attacked Japan from 1853 onwards? Yes, he said, I know we weren't allowed to say that. The Australian population are taught to be ignorant. As I said at the beginning, this is not helped by what is supposedly the big thinking ABC, which seems to me, you know, I mean, well, give you one example. Over the Ukraine, Gerald Bean Dugd in that morning program twice recommended things written by the war criminal Henry Kissinger. Where are their brains in relation to, to all of this? Do they have no collective memory in the ABC? Do they not know about Kissinger? This is what we're up against, which is why things like 3CR are so vital. And it's great to hear political activist and historian Humphrey McQueen here on 3CR. 3CR Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. The Forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The Forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narm. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narm. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, a 3CR supporter. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. 
on 3CR 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. The headline says it all. In Sri Lanka, organic farmer went catastrophically wrong. A nationwide experiment is abandoned after producing only misery. Faced with a deepening economic and humanitarian crisis, Sri Lanka called off its ill-conceived national experiment in organic agriculture this winter. The president had promised to transition the country's farmers to organic agriculture over a 10-year period. And last April, Rajapaksa made good on that promise, imposing a nationwide ban on importation and use of synthetic fertiliser and pesticides and ordering the country's 2 million farmers to go organic. The result was brutal and swift. That's the headlines. Bob Phelps, Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. What's the true story? It did have traction in the mainstream media, and, uh, and I think that uh, it is largely disinformation. The Sri Lankan economy has been in serious strife, and uh, it was just convenient for those who wanted to support industrialised agriculture to blame the previous government's attempts to transition to uh, organic because, of course, with the skyrocketing prices of fuel, fertilisers, chemicals, etc., etc., industrialised agriculture was in serious trouble and affecting the Sri Lankan economy. But, of course, industrial agriculture is... The problem is not the solution. Uh, you know, it's degraded soil, polluted waterways, been poisoning people and particularly those who eat fish. It's contributing to greenhouse gases, of course. And so transitioning to regenerate and organic farming systems, which has been successful in other places like Cuba, did make sense, but maybe it went too far and fast. They just weren't really prepared to for it. Blaming organic, of course, suits people like CropLife, who represent the agrochemical industry and, and also genetically manipulated crops. CropLife in Australia, for instance, um, represents 85% of those companies that sell agrochemicals and nearly 100% of uh, those who sell the genetically engineered crops. So, of course, they would be leaping up and down and uh, saying organics don't work because, uh, in fact, organic agriculture in Australia, at least, is the uh, fastest-growing sector of, uh, of farming. And regenerative farming systems, which are, uh, of course, sim- sympathetic with organic, are also being increasing as conventional farmers run out of options. They're trying to go regenerative as well to look after their soils, clean up waterways, re-establish biodiversity, which is essential to the uh, good operation of their farming uh, systems. The trouble is with most of those chemicals that you've mentioned that there's too many people or maybe not that many people now making huge profits and convincing the farmers that, you know, you have to have it. Life won't be quite the same if you don't have all those chemicals. Well, yes, of course, and uh, you know they spend a huge amount of money on promotion and regulation. The uh, regulatory system is uh, dominated by the agrochemical industry because, of course, they pay to be regulated on the basis of the amount of each chemical that they sell each year. They are levied 
to pay to be regulated in the rural media especially of course they're promoting their products very very vigorously and they do that through um, people who advise them as well extension services and uh, agronomists and so on so uh, the farming community are really in a bind and uh, the transition to organics can take a while just harking back to Sri Lanka for a moment and the previous example of success of course was Cuba where um, uh, when Russia stopped supplying them with oil they were really in a hard place and feeding their own people with the US embargo on uh, the exports of food etc was really very difficult but after several years of concerted effort they did successfully uh, transition to completely organic agriculture in Cuba today and uh, have abundant food supplies available to all and that of course should be the goal of every agricultural system is to feed local communities well and yet we even now see here in Australia that one and a half million people are food insecure and not able to afford even the food that's available. Their diets are dominated by ultra-processed foods like hamburgers and so on which are, uh, just make you sick. <laughs> Instead of fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, only 5% of the Australian population is actually um, consuming the recommended daily amounts of uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. So we all should be lifting our game in that respect. And of course it's very hard to judge what percentage of food that people are eating is actually causing their health problems. Well, I think the government now, the federal government, is pretty alive to that. They've got a preventive health strategy and it's the whole document really is shot through with the problems of uh, ultra-processed foods, fats, sugar and salt in the diet, which are very addictive. We've now got the situation uh, in Australia where um, two-thirds of adults are either overweight or obese and a quarter of children from the ages of 5 to 17 are also overweight or obese. And this goes directly to the issue of what people are eating. Of course, there's inactivity, um, a lack of good exercise, sitting in front of computers and playing video games, etc., which contributes to that. But um, if people could afford and were eating the five recommended serves of fruits and vegetables daily, then I think the health picture would be um, extremely different. And... The government is um, alive to these issues and it's in a lot of the strategy documents and policy documents. But the problem is that uh, the international processed food industry is an extremely powerful lobby, strongly representing their interests. And other sectors, for instance, like alcohol, for instance, the alcohol um, industry in, in a submission it made during a current round of uh, consultations on various aspects of the food supply said that uh, food standards Australia and New Zealand should only focus on safety issues that's transmissible diseases and contamination and so on and should have nothing to do at all with uh, preventing lifestyle diseases and ensuring people are um, healthy and that their well-being is in good order whereas health and well-being should be the, actually the top priorities of the food supply. The government and everybody should be asserting, of course, as well, a healthy diet, a nutritious diet. And yet we've got, uh, as I mentioned, 1.5 million people, including many, many children, 
who are hungry or starving in the midst of plenty in Australia. It's just unacceptable. The Right to Food Coalition, of course, is working on this, uh, but the community voices are um, out-resourced and out-shouted by um, the transnational processed food industries, uh, the hamburger kings and all the others who sell their trashy foods that are harming human health, making people obese and giving them diabetes and heart disease, etc., they have the loudest voice in the deepest pockets and that's not satisfactory. Governments must act. And we'll certainly be talking to the uh, new Undersecretary, Jed Carney, about uh, this changing. The Food Forum, which is the forum of all the health ministers from all the states and territories, the federal government and New Zealand met yesterday. Uh, so it's early days, but uh, Jed Carney is the chair. It will be good to have a talk with her, I think, about the directions that the food um, system needs to go to ensure that every community in Australia, including remote and indigenous communities, has um, the very best access they can to fresh fruits and vegetables and a good, healthy diet. Well, Bob, it's all very well to say that we all should have the five serves of fruit and vegetables, but if we could have those fruit and vegetable serves without herbicides and chemicals added to them. <laughs> yes, you're certainly right there. <laughs> Disease control and prevention in the USA have just done a survey of Americans. Of course, it's a slightly different picture from here, but I think you'd get similar results. They found that 80% of Americans, or a sample of um, 2,300 uh, urine samples were taken, and 80% of them uh, found... Um, the active ingredient in Roundup, glyphosate, in those urine samples at relatively low levels, but nonetheless it was there. And, of course, this says something pretty serious about American agriculture itself in that since they introduced genetically engineered herbicide-tolerant crops, uh, particularly tolerant of uh, Roundup some 20 years ago, what we see is that almost 100% of the soy, corn and cotton and, of course, cotton is a food source as well with cottonseed oil and linters coming into the food supply, that uh, when you, without harming the crop plants, in order to manage your weeds better, you do get um, residues in the food, and uh, it does end up in um, American pea samples. Um, 80% of those that the uh, Centers for Disease Control tested the thing to say about this, of course, is that if you took uh, Australia as another, another example, but I'm sure it's the same in the USA, the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority in Australia has something of the order of 11,000 different formulations of herbicides and pesticides and insecticides and fungicides, a whole raft of other chemicals, including veterinary chemicals as well, registered. So we're not just when we when we do uh, sampling for glyphosate and not for the other thousands of uh, potential chemical residues in the food supply, chemical mess in our conventional fruits and vegetables. Although the uh, food authorities do an annual survey where they don't usually find huge amounts of residues uh, that exceed the so-called maximum residue levels. 
we still need to worry about this because there is no assessment of the uh, cumulative or the inter interactional effects of all of these different chemicals together in the foods that we eat. So there's a lot to think about there and wonder whether those residues are also contributing to the general ill health of our community. Uh, even if we are eating the five serves of fruits and vegetables daily. I want to talk, Bob, about bees. There's a crisis worldwide in bees, and just in the, the UK, they've overruled scientific advice by lifting a ban on a bee-having pesticide, and that's the neonicotoids. What can you say about that? Well, that is a problem, and of course, yes, it's certainly known to um, disorient bees and has probably been a major contributor, if not the main cause, of uh, colony collapse disorder, which has been a problem very widely uh, in Europe and North America and in other parts of the world as well. The contemporary problem, of course, for Australia is the invasion of um, varroa mite and uh, that points to the uh, biosecurity problems that Australia has. We've got uh, foot and mouth disease in Indonesia, uh, particularly in Bali. The government's racing to try to uh, head off the possibility that foot and mouth disease, which we've seen uh, cause huge numbers of uh, animal fatalities um, in the UK and Europe in previous outbreaks, and currently in uh, Indonesia as well, that it doesn't end up coming to Australia. So the bees, yes, the bee varroa mite coming in, and um, I think around about 100 um, parts of the bee industry within New South Wales, particularly around Newcastle, being isolated at the moment. Um, just for one example, the almond growers who are, a multi-billion dollar industry in Australia and absolutely dependent on having their um, almond trees pollinated, particularly by bees, are racing to try to find another alternative because uh, if they can't get those hives uh, into their localities for pollination this season, then uh, the almond harvest is likely to be very, very indeed. Bees have got the function of uh, providing honey for the human community, and that's great, but uh, pollination services are actually more valuable and more important uh, in the production of food. Many, many uh, industries, their crops being pollinated as well, and uh, without those pollinators, uh, we're in trouble. So neonicotinoids um, get them out of production systems everywhere. They're clearly a threat but there are many, many other threats as well to bees and uh, to native bees, which are an important asset to Australia, as well as to the uh, imported and domesticated European bees that do most of the heavy lifting on uh, pollination at the moment. How long have bees been transported all around the place to do that pollination? I remember reading something a few years ago saying that the bees are actually exhausted and for all the work that they're expected to do and being transported. They gave the example of America where they are being transported across the whole of the country from east to west. Yes, well, that is an issue. It's like any um, organism, any animal being put on a truck and uh, simply shunted around as a uh, 
a resource to be exploited just a bit like workers, really. <laughs> Itinerant workers in the agricultural industry are not treated um, very differently, and, uh, of course, they get exhausted as well. So uh, I think it's it behoves those who are producing our food to really amend their ways and to treat all parts of the uh, food production system with respect and try to get on to those regenerative and organic systems that are going to be more friendly, we hope, to food production because we, we do depend on it. Of course, there are other trends. Um, there's some good work being done by um, Sustain, for instance, and the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance on uh, things like urban agriculture where people, and particularly school kids, are being taught as well to um, use the urban environment to produce food at home, whether it's on your balcony or in your little pocket handkerchief your backyard because, of course, um, most of those tract housing estates that we see popping up all across what used to be productive farmland around our cities don't have backyards are so close together that really there's no way that you could uh, put in a proper veggie garden as we saw when we were young when uh, growing veggies in your backyard was uh, was part of the picture and you could just go out and pick the uh, crop that you needed uh, for the next meal. And another part of the puzzle and part of the picture, of course, is community gardens as well. Seeing communities set up more and more of those and setting up farmers' markets and the like as well so that farmers are genuinely supported. These are all great trends, but uh, uh, we need to encourage them and to support them. And as shoppers, we need to go and uh, participate in these activities and just leave those ultra-processed foods in the middle of the supermarket on the shelves as our exposure to the fat, salt and sugar that uh, most of those products uh, contain, which are known now clearly to harm our health. And, of course, we have Cuba to thank also for that urban garden beginning. Yes, yes, it was one of the early uptake, uh, of course, having the whole community engaged in uh, feeding themselves when push comes to shove that was um, all they could do and uh, they made a success of it it could be and should be a model for the world i mean another great thing that the cubans continue to do is to train doctors you know uh, for just to take one example uh, there's a batch of doctors um, trained in east timor who uh, were trained by the cubans and it would have been uh, a very good sign of goodwill for Australia. Uh, Certainly some institutions like Victoria University, for example, engage very much in projects to do with East Timor. But, um, you know, we're in the current geopolitical bind with uh, China uh, showing an interest in the Pacific because of the centuries of colonial neglect, which have continued since these countries got their independence. Uh, and only now is are Australia and New Zealand showing greater interest in supporting people who are suffering the impacts of uh, climate change with the sea rising and inundating their water supplies and food as well, just as one instance, but only really being motivated by resistance to uh, Chinese government influence in the area. If we really were, good, faithful and long-term friends, we would have been doing this 
already. And uh, I think uh, it's great that Penny Wong and and her team are out there showing the flag, but it's going to take quite a time, I think, to fix up the uh, the harm that's been done by the neglect that's been visited on countries around our region. Every government from uh, Menzies onward, including the Labor governments, have uh, sought to grab the oil in the Timor Sea and claim it as our own, even though at least half of it belonged to the Timorese. And uh, really, then to bug the negotiations over the oil was just outrageous, unbelievable, but uh, it was just another symptom of the track record of Australian governments uh, neglecting the region and trying to exploit resources unfairly by any means from Menzies onward. Zeno transplants, I know that's been talked about for a couple of decades now, but there was one in the US recently, a, a pig part transplanted into a male. There was a lot of publicity when that happened, but it went very quiet soon after, not long after. Yes, uh, it was the first one. David Bennett was the first xenotransplant patient. Xenotransplant is when you take an organ from another animal and uh, put it into human being. Of course, the research has been going on for a long time of transferring organs between other animals than humans. But in any event, David Bennett was the first. Um, He survived earlier this year for a couple of months after apparently tolerating the... uh, the pig heart that had been um, transferred into him pretty well. He was rejected as a transplant patient for a a human organ because he had been um, a heavy smoker and had refused to um, play the game and agreed, as he was terminal, uh, to have the Zeno transplant and, as I said, did survive quite well for a couple of months. However, he then did die. And, of course, a post-mortem was done to find out what really had happened. And the surprise then was that the organ, the the heart from the pig, was not virus-free. It actually um, contained a, a cytomegalovirus from the pig, which is virulent and potentially transmissible as well. And it's thought that that had contributed to his death. The thing is that the people who were supplying the pig, the hearts from the pigs, uh, a colony of pigs that was supposed to be absolutely virus-free got serious egg on their face because um, of the discovery of the virus. It is potentially a means of transmitting viruses into the human population if it were to move from human to human. Transmission of COVID and uh, now the uh, monkeypox have recently done into the human population, causing some some consternation and problems worldwide. I think there'll need to be a rethink again about xenotransplanting uh, animal organs into the human population. I certainly hope there is, and that uh, the precautionary principle applies. Of course, people shout about the shortage of human organs for transplant, but we also, harking back to what we were talking about earlier, need to fix up the health and well-being of the human population by amending our food supply, fixing up our lifestyle, taking more exercise, um, stopping smoking and alcohol consumption, and generally trying to achieve good health by that means and minimising the number of uh, 
of uh, organ transplants. As we know, as is re- widely reported, we've got the Chinese government and uh, Chinese uh, systems executing prisoners and, use, and, and then on selling their organs. That's one thing. Uh, or um, resorting to xenotransplantation from animals where we've got this problem that uh, uh, we may get viruses or other diseases transmitted into the human population and create a, uh, a further problem for ourselves. So let's try to get preventive about human health and welfare through the food supply and other strategies rather than having to fix up the problem afterwards. Very expensive and fraught with these perils, which are now evident from this one experience um, of David Bennett probably dying from the cytomegalovirus from the pig heart, which was transferred into him. Uh, We can do better. We need to be preventive, and we need to be precautionary. Uh, The precautionary principle should apply in all these cases, but in many cases it doesn't, unfortunately. Well, finally, Bob, as you written the era of human gene editing is here. It's just a fancy word, is it, for eugenics, but it sounds a lot better? Well, that's one of the potential problems that's opened up. Yes, of course, um, eugenics as an idea has been around since Darwin's time. His cousin, in fact, was the uh, promoter of uh, social engineering through things like sterilising women who were thought to... uh, be unfit to reproduce and so on. And that became very, very popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries um, in the USA and Europe and Australia and New Zealand, uh, for instance, until it was given a bad name by Hitler. Those ideas are still around, the idea of perfecting human beings and of snuffing out those that are thought to be um, unsuitable to reproduce, etc., So when genome editing, the new tools of amending our genetic makeup come on the scene, we certainly should be um, alive to the possibility, particularly where it can be enabled by the CRISP engineering techniques that were invented 10 years ago. When these tools now arrive, because they're being promoted as uh, creating new methods of uh, treating disease and so on, but also that there can be the downside of uh, trying to enhance human beings or get rid of those that are thought to be unsuitable. These are really important discussions that we need to have before anyone's allowed to start doing heritable human genome editing. Uh, And yet we've seen uh, legislation passed through the Australian Parliament uh, as the very last item of business before the election, uh, which will open the gates to this kind of activity. We hope that uh, in the Parliament there will be very much uh, more vigorous discussion about the ethics and social impacts of uh, the potential uh, approval of uh, these uh, new gene editing techniques being used in the population and uh, just making sure that if they're used at all, and there's a question mark around that as well, that if they are used, that they're only used uh, for good purposes and not bad. Well, just finally, Bob, spring is just around the corner and we were talking before about backyard gardening, backyard vegetables, the time for people to start thinking about what they can plant in the garden or on their window ledge or whatever. 
Well, right, yeah, and I could, on that score, recommend Gardening Australia on ABC TV because um, Costa and his team are always on about, uh, you know, seasonal planting and what's going to be good in different parts of Australia. Of course, um, you know, in Victoria, we've got particular climates. Um, planting what's right and in the right place in the garden here is absolutely critical to getting a good crop a few weeks hence. So uh, look out for gardening in Australia. And, of course, there's a whole lot of other good information on the web and there are some good outfits out there supplying excellent seed, Digger's Seed Club, Green Patch, Eden Seeds, and several others that uh, are um, promoting seed and making seed and plants available that are not genetically engineered, that are um, uh, organic, and that um, growers should be favouring to get a good crop and to minimise the amount of um, synthetic chemicals and other nasties that they might have to spray in their garden. Yeah, go for it. And uh, particularly listen to those kids who are learning from the garden projects at school with enthusiasm, uh, respond to their enthusiasm uh, by making a bit of space available for them to have gardens as well because uh, it's the next generation that we need to ensure does not go down that path of uh, poor diets and uh, poor health as a result of having a bad diet of ultra-processed foods loaded with nasty stuff. And it's always great to hear from Bob Phillips, the Executive Director of the Gene Ethics Network. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants, included grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls, native flower displays and activities for children. Refreshments will also be available. Wheelchair friendly, adults at $5, concessions $4 and children free. Check out our website for plant lists, apsyarayarra.org.au forward slash Australian Plants Expo. A 3CR supporter. Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grassland for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. On the 1st of August, the United Nations held a landmark high-level meeting at its New York headquarters to review the treaty designed to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons and ultimately to phase out nuclear weapons altogether. Secretary-General Antonio Guterres issued a dire warning in his address to the UN saying that humanity is just one misunderstanding one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. Referring to Russia's February 24 invasion of Ukraine, a bitter and bloody war 
that is still ongoing, even as Washington, London and Paris are urging Russia to halt its dangerous nuclear rhetoric and behaviour. In speeches at the session, the US, Japan and Germany also discussed the danger of issuing nuclear threats and cyber-rattling, as US Secretary of State Antony Blinken called Russia's recent playing of the nuclear card to dissuade other nations from involving themselves to back Ukraine in its fight to starve off Russian invasion. Speaking now with anti-war peace activist Brian Terrell from his home on the farm in Malloy, Iowa. Brian, tell us, before we look at what this this treaty meeting, it happens every five years, when it began and, and why? Don't have uh, notes up on it, uh, but it, it came into force in the 70s and all the, the U.S. and uh, all the NATO countries and Russia and China and yeah, all the nuclear countries, I think, except for Israel, North Korea, Pakistan and India signed it. So the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, and it's supposed to be mostly that the countries that don't have nuclear weapons don't get them, and that the countries that do have them don't share that technology with anybody else. You know, it doesn't spread. And the countries that have them are supposed to make a good faith effort at nuclear disarmament and, and disarmament in general. Good faith is the words that the treaty uses. So the reality is, you know, that while the United States especially is, you know, very concerned about Iran and North Korea and other countries and concerned about Russia too following this treaty, just as the United States were yesterday was the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and a couple of days commemorating the, the, the bombing of Nagasaki, we're the first people to use it, the United States, and we have been the ones proliferating and spreading nuclear weapons. We've been ahead every step of the game. And at present, the U.S. is undergoing a uh, program that they call stockpile stewardship. And what their stewardship they want to exercise is over the stockpile of nuclear weapons. And, And also they use this very strange words of life expectancy. They're increasing the life expectancy of nuclear bombs. I'm not far from Kansas City, and I've been at protests there. I'm on probation, actually, for an alleged trespass there a couple of years ago, where they're making the non-nuclear parts of these new weapons that the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff celebrate as being uh, more flexible and deployable, and that with these weapons that they can envision the United States commanders prevailing on the battlefield. And it's a very scary thing because uh, you know, Russia, of course, is saber-rattling, and they're talking about the possibility, and I, and I think what Vladimir Putin is doing is actually quite uh, sober and sane in a way of telling the West, be really careful of this. You know, things could get out of hand. But the U.S. is saying, with these new weapons, we might be able to win. So they're also using these weapons. They've been for, for years in Europe through NATO. I just got back a couple of weeks ago from uh, a visit to Germany and protests at Bukel, the German base where the U.S. has a squadron of U.S. Air Force keeping uh, 15 to 20 uh, nuclear bombs that are going to be replaced in the next months maybe by these new bombs being made, much of it in Kansas City and, uh, and a few other places, with a, with a new, more flexible bomb. 
you know, the new improved nuclear bombs are being moved into, into Germany and what, Italy, Netherlands, Belgium, and Turkey. I think those are the nuclear sharing countries. So these other countries are all signers of the non-proliferation treaty as well, and they're not supposed to get them. And in a way, this, this is a very shadowy legal area because the civilian governments of these countries are not officially aware. It's, a, it's an open secret. There's no nobody saying they're not there, but but it, there's never there has never been official acknowledgement. So the voters and parliamentarians in these countries have had no say in whether their country is going to be a nuclear power, nuclear weapons power. And in you know, some countries <clears throat> in Germany and in Netherlands, especially, people are and many parliamentarians are very much against having these U.S. weapons there because it makes their country into a target. Other weapons, but this. The excuse, the legal manipulation the United States uses to say that they're not in violation of the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty is that the United States Air Force has possession of these weapons, even though they train every day with the German, the Dutch, the Belgian military to uh, deliver these bombs to Russia. They're still in the hands of the United States until the order comes to put those bombs on the German, Dutch, Italian, etc. planes and send them off. And they say if the purpose of the Proliferation Treaty is to prevent a nuclear war, if those weapons are put on a on a plane, treaty is abrogated. So, you know, it's a very strange twist. It's kind of like somebody being a vegetarian in between meals. You know, and, and, and the danger of this, you know, last fall I was in Europe during what they, they called Operation Steadfast Noon, which was a NATO, all the NATO countries and several of the, of the other allies, like, you know, the militaries of 20-some countries were, were all practicing bombing Russia. This was back in October. The militaries of all these countries mobilized and the airs were full of the fighter planes and, and bombers from all these countries all this nuclear capability, all to show Russia that we can attack them anytime we want. Realize, you can't comprehend what, what a threat that is and how destabilizing it is. And a few months later, Russia invades Ukraine, and the, the connection is, is very real between those two facts. Just wondering, Brian, how the people in these countries, especially where you were just recently, how they feel about all this? Do they talk about it? Do they worry about it? Do they know about it? There's not much under, not much understanding, and, and that's one of the things about these protests is that we're meeting people all the time who are, who are aghast. My first trip to, to Europe was in 1983 when there were uh, protests against the Pershing missiles, uh, nuclear pulled by trucks all over. <laughs> you know, that they're not like the land-based missiles. They couldn't be targeted because they were always moving, and... At the time, between these and the other bombs, the United States had more than 7,000 nuclear weapons in Germany. President Reagan at the time actually boasted that with these nuclear weapons in Germany that, they, that we could have a, a war with Russia and not have any bombs land in the United States. That, that was his stratagem. And that, and that got people in Europe upset. And I, I was very – that was an exciting there because millions of people on the street and really – deeply informed conversations everywhere in the pubs and churches and schools and on the street. You know, people were very angry and very, uh, very aware of what was going on. 
and at that time you couldn't miss it because like these Pershing missiles, they, they're not you know, ready to, to, to launch hell at a, at a moment. Uh, today it's just much more subtle and we can, we can be happy down from 17 to 20 or fewer is, uh, from 7,000 nuclear weapons to 20 or fewer is a huge progress, but in these last years that progress is reversing and it doesn't take 15 nuclear weapons going off to make this planet uninhabitable and there isn't any I, you know, I think every every plan is that we're almost on automatic, that if there's a nuclear attack, the missiles and the submarines and the missiles based on land, you know, the bombers are ready to scramble in a moment. This is both for the United States and for Russia. It's very unlikely it's going to stop. The limited nuclear wars would be horrible enough, but it's it's a very unlikely scenario. It's, it's more, you know, it's a doomsday scenario. And in the last few days uh, in New York at the U.N. with the non-proliferation treaty meetings and then uh, yesterday speaking about Hiroshima, uh, Guterres, the uh, head of the Secretary General of the United Nations, you know, you know, twice in recent days spoke out about how the danger the world is in today is greater than it's ever been before of a nuclear war. The main difference is that people don't seem to be as concerned about it as they were at the height of the Cold War and then in the 1980s. Yeah, so uh, we have just raised the alarm and, and, and to, to talk about the things that we have to do, that we must do to prevent this. You know, if we're going to have any kind of life here on this planet, you know, the two big things are existential threats, are nuclear weapons and climate change, and the, the two are very, are very linked. Well, apart from what Guterres says, this five-year review, do you see it more as a, a talk fest? Yes, unfortunately. Just at least as far as the, the governments go, I think. I know people who are with the NGOs and people protesting on the street, you know, finding it, you know, I, I think there's some very powerful things going on among the, among the smaller countries uh, who are not nuclear powers. You know, there's very important discussions going on, and, and, it's, and all that's good. But as far as what the, you know, the United States, Russia, China, France, uh, UK, they are the big, you know, the big nuclear states. Uh, there's not much happening of, of any substance. Uh, there was a, uh, a gathering of, or for what they called it, of the member states of the, of the for the, the treaty to, to abolish nuclear weapons. None of the NATO countries, except for I think Germany and Netherlands showed up. Uh, and they're not signing the treaty to ban nuclear weapons, but they were there as observers. But I think it was the representative from Netherlands said is that uh, they weren't going to sign the treaty to abolish nuclear weapons because it was against uh, NATO policy. And said as long as they're nuclear weapons, NATO is going to have them. And that's pretty hopeless. I, I think what we've seen is in these last years is, is the hopefulness of the 80s and early 90s of nuclear disarmament and then real steps being taken are being very quickly reversed. Yeah, this is a very, very dangerous time. Well, turn now, Brian, to killer drones and the man in the US who blew the whistle on the drone program. We're talking about Daniel Hale, a drone analyst in the US Air Force in Afghanistan, for his so-called crime, he's now serving 
45 months, I think it, it is, in a federal prison in Marion, Illinois. It's the first anniversary of that sentence. Can you talk a little about his so-called crime and how he is being treated in prison? Yes. Yeah, 45 months in prison. Uh, he was in the uh, U.S. military, and then he was working for a, a contractor and working with the, you know, working on, on the security issues. You know, he was seeing that at U.S. Congress were not being told what's going on, and uh, he made uh, a series of exposures of U.S. policy. He's one of several whistleblowers. One of the things that we that that we got from him is that documents to show that the CIA is aware that of all the people killed in U.S. drone strikes, only 10% are the intended targets. And that's, you know, very sobering. Sometimes people relate that and say only 10% are, are guilty and 90% are not. No, it's, it's who's targeted. And we target people on spurious information and bad intelligence. I think, it, you know, just because of the numbers, it, it fits, you know, back in uh, just about a year ago, it was August, there was a drone strike in Kabul. That it, was, it was just days after the suicide attack on the airport in Kabul as the U.S. was leaving. Other people were trying to get out of the country. I don't know how many. I don't think they're uncountable Afghan civilians were killed. But 13 American service people, American soldiers, were killed. Yeah, what President Biden said is, we do not forgive, we do not forget, we will hunt you down, make you pay at the time of our choosing, the place of our choice, the moment of our choosing. We will, we will get you. And then three days later, they announced that they had killed another um, ISIS-K operative, a man who was getting ready to who've been followed, been followed for hours, and they say they stopped him on the verge of another suicide attack at the airport where the crowds were still gathering. And, you know, General Miley, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right away called it a righteous strike, and they said they're 100% sure there were no civilian casualties. They just killed this one man who was preparing. He had his car packed with explosives and cans of gasoline, and he was on his way to the airport. And they saved all these lives. And so it turned out there's a man, his name was Mario Amadi, who was killed in that strike. And it was the strikes are in, in the mountainous provinces. And at the time, there was a lot of press in Kabul, uh, more than usual, as the U.S. was leaving. And it turned out that they, there was 10 people killed. And one, Mr. Amadi, who was not a terrorist, the ISIS-K, but he was an employee of a California-based uh, human rights organization called Nutrition and Education. He was driving into his compound, uh, and one of his uh, a, a relative was with him in the car, and uh, his children came running out of the house to see their father after he was gone for a day's work. This Hellfire missile hit, and 10 people were killed. So 10 people. So what, what Daniel Hale is saying is not that one out of 10 is a terrorist. They're saying one out of 10 is targeted. And Mr. Ahmadi was targeted. So he would fit into that, <laughs> into that category. So, so, so we're killing 
so many innocent people. That, you know, the number 10 keeps coming up in my mind about this because in 2010, Stanley McChrystal, U.S. general who was in charge of NATO forces in Afghanistan, said about the drone strikes, when you kill an innocent person in a drone strike, that the United States creates 10 enemies for itself. So by that math, I'm not good at math, but I can do 10. It's really easy. Is easily you know 100 enemies being made, and that's something we know from Daniel Hale is that the CIA is this is counterproductive. But the, you know, the documents are over and over and over again that it's the, if, if the object is to get rid of or to, to to even quell terrorism, that this is this program only increases terrorism. But as another Australian Julian Assange, another jail whistleblower said about the war in in um, Afghanistan. He said this in 19, uh, 2011, U.S. Assange, saying, the goal of the war is to use Afghanistan to wash money out of the tax bases of the U.S. and Europe through Afghanistan and back into the hands of the transnational security elite. The goal is endless war, not a successful war. So the war isn't over. President Biden promised that. He said it's going to be moved to over the horizon. And we saw this um, just in the last days. A uh, successor to the head of al-Qaeda, Zawari, was, was killed in a drone strike. What's interesting is President Biden announced saying that we had delivered justice. The United States had delivered justice to this man. And he said he has taken off the battlefield forever. And I'm not trying to uh, to justify Al-Qaeda or its operatives at all. not delivered. A missile was delivered. And Mrs. Al-Hiri was never charged with a crime in a court, was never arrested, was never found guilty. He had no trial. There was no process at all. And he wasn't taken off the battlefield. This is something about the American drone program. It's almost never, almost never used in battle. He was killed in his home. You know, that's uh, certainly a war crime. He, he was a non-combatant. He was targeted. So he's one of the 10 out of 100 U.S. drone victims who's, who was targeted. But he, it was still just, just an assassination. So, yeah, the, you know, the, the, the war is continuing. Uh, I was happy to see the BBC speak reported that the U.S. had reported him being uh, uh, killed several times before. I remember the, the first, very first drone strike that killed anybody was October 7, 2001, when the, U, the same day the United States started bombing in Kabul after the beginning of, of that part of that war. They announced that Mullah Omar, the, the head of the Taliban, had been killed in a drone strike, and we're celebrating that. And a few days later, we found out that Mullah Omar was alive and well, but what the person who was killed was was a farmer who was just out in his fields in the you know in a, in a rural rural place who who had the bad luck of looking like Mullah Omar, at least looking like to somebody sitting in a Nevada, saying, "Oh, there he is." I think there's something I, I met Daniel Hale. A couple times I heard him speak. One thing that, that that really struck me, he was talking about how he was stationed at an Air Force base in Florida for some time, 
And this was a base where they uh, helped determine these are supposedly um, experts, intelligence experts, but they were mostly young men and women, you know, in their 20s, who were sitting in this room watching. There were dozens of screens, and they were watching. They had to be tipped off. So the drone operator in Nevada or in Iowa, wherever they are, they can't just decide they're going to shoot their missiles. They have to clear it with people. So these young people who have never been to Afghanistan, and as we've talked before, I've been there, I think, seven times over over like eight years. And each of the visits, I would usually be able to get out and about with some friends, and I would wear the, the, you know, the clothes of the local people and have my head in a turban. You know, I'd been there seven times, and I'd been in the, I'd been in other Muslim countries, you know, quite a bit. I didn't know who was who. Say we have to get out of here because they would see a situation that seemed dangerous. Even these friends who were Afghans who lived in Afghanistan, they wouldn't know for sure who was a terrorist. But this expectation was of these, of you know, Daniel Hale is like a 23 year old kid. He was supposed to be able to help determine whether somebody watching somebody on, on a video screen was a terrorist. But the big thing I remember from him, his relating this is he said this room was like a sports bar in that there were TV screens all over this big room full of young people. And instead of a football game or a horse race or something on, or, or boxing match, match on each screen, there was a feed, video feed from a drone. But there was one screen that had a a loop, like a five-second loop that they played over and over and over again. It was always in sight. And they were watching over and over again a video of one of the planes flying into the World Trade Center on 9-11. They're watching this. This is constantly in the corner of their eye, all the time while they're trying to determine who's a terrorist. And that really makes, you know, for a kind of a confirmation bias. You're reminded of an act of terrorism on the United States that had uh, nothing to do with most of the people who were on the uh, that they'd be watching on the on the video screens, but still, you know, they were much more apt to say there's a bad guy because of this this uh, uh, relentless psychological you know, reminder of 9/11. Thank you to hear more from anti-war peace activist Brian Terrell on the program next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.